electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Mel, thank you so much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour from Post 9 here at the New York Stock Exchange. More green for stocks. The S&P stays on pace to end its three-week losing streak. Rates, meantime, taking a breather today after pushing to multi-month highs. We're going to discuss and debate what all of that means to your money. And joining me for the hour right here, Post 9, Shannon Sakosha, Steve Weiss, Rob Seachins here as well, along with Jim Labenthal. Let's get things going. We're going to get to the markets in a moment, but we do have some very big moves today from Shannon Sakosha, and that is where we are going to begin. You trimmed Apple and Microsoft. We did. We did. Why did you do that? Um, well, you know, it's not because I dislike technology. We've talked about this on the show many times yeah. um, and have a very strong view about technology and the importance of innovation. Um, but what we have been doing over the last 18 months is really thinking about how we're accessing technology and where we're taking those positions. So if we go back in 18, 18 months ago, we would have had overweight to the market positions in both Apple and Microsoft. Right. We've trimmed those back in order to continue to fund other names. Now, those two specifically are for two separate reasons. Number one, um, we do believe that there is going to be some continued pressure in this near-term period as we think about rates and we think about what could potentially happen with the Fed's dot plot in March. Okay. And so we think that those larger names may continue to see some pressure. And the other reason is that if you look at what's happening with the consumer, with Apple, if you look at what's happening with um, some concerns about, continued concerns about China, for Apple specifically, that's our largest holding still, um, but we certainly don't want to be above benchmark weight in that given some of the near-term concerns we have. Okay, so today Morgan Stanley bumps the price target, Eric Woodring over there to 180. He thinks there could be an extra trillion dollars in market cap unlocked from AI. Um, and Apple today, by the way, some are making the case. I've gotten emails already. You know, so goes Apple, so goes the market, right? Dow's up 250 now. Apple's pushing back towards 150, making another nice uh, move here. And, and by the way, there's a Dow Jones headline today, too. Foxconn is set to expand iPhone production, and they're going to have an expansion in India. I just wonder if now is the wrong time to, you know, get off this train, so to Whoa. speak, that, you know, People are still going to put money Absolutely. where you go where the money is, and the money is still going to flow to Apple. Well, in our growth portfolio, this still represents almost a 5% position. So, I mean, this is not a small position for us. It's just relative to the weight in the S&P 500 and thinking about the potential for other parts of either the tech sector or other sectors like industrials and healthcare to potentially lead into the second half of the year. Now, that's not to say that I couldn't see a scenario where we would potentially add to those positions again. Okay. We do think that they deserve probably at least a market, if not market overweight, in a 2024 scenario where we're in a 
lower rate environment. But for me, I'd rather go into names that have a stronger competitive advantage or potentially a better valuation. Some come one one or both of those that I think might make sense in this interim. So, period. OK, so you trim Apple, you trim Microsoft, you bought into it, which Oh, but I mean, that, that's not exact. You think that's cheap? No, I don't. That's why I said competitive advantage and or valuation, uh, okay, Scott. the and or so, you know. was the underline. <laughs> because I'm looking at the PE, I'm like, what? Well, because we've added to some, we, we've added to Cisco this year, we've added IBM this year, or in 2022. Um, Intuit is, has, a, has a competitive advantage in terms of the type of business that they are operating in, which is tax and accounting, which tend to be much more resilient, not fully insulated from recession, but much more resilient than some of the enterprise spending that you have consistently raised awareness of for me about um, on the show in terms of how, what if enterprise spending slows? Agreed. I love the move to the AI platform that Intuit is focused on. I like the business that they're in and the fact that they're getting better margins mm -hmm. off of their online, which is now a majority of their revenues, leads me to believe that we continue to have margin expansion for a company like this, where margins are potentially under fire in other parts of the sector. Weiss, let's kick this around. Um, trimming some mega caps, going to other areas of growth where you, you know, you, you think you have some ad advantages that maybe you don't have now in other places. Yeah, as far as Apple, it's an interesting point because Foxconn is increasing, you know, and, and Apple's trying to increase their supply chain outside of China. And I think that is a real risk. Um, Apple's largest employer in China through Foxconn. Risk is the China right. risk, not right. yet. So China. Not 20 percent exactly. of what? Tw I think it's 20 percent of sales come from China. Right. So, so there's a risk there. Look, uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with owning Apple here, uh, but to think that they'll be immune from what we're seeing with the consumer generally, I think is misplaced. So it's going to hit them on their phones. However, you still got the phone companies subsidizing them, so that's that that gets away that headwind. In Microsoft, I still believe you can get it cheaper. I don't think it's compelling here. So I'd love to own it. I think I'll own it at lower prices. That's been my strategy, and I, and I will own it. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing in the move today in, uh, in the markets uh, uh, goes back to what I've talked about repeatedly. You're in a data-free window right now. We know what the Fed speakers are going to say. Okay, We know next week you've got employment at the end of the week. I mean, you had services and, PMI today, right? right? That was, was good. Was, it was good. It was above. It was good for if you're above expectations. Yeah, it was good, but it didn't blow away. And the market sort of said, OK, we know the data is good. We know the economics are good. But until we get a hard, hard, real important number like CPI or, you know, PPI or the jobs number, then we're not going to. I hear you. you know, but, to, but this move, party. this move, you know, into the close yesterday when, when yeah. I was doing closing bell and then today, it's pretty resilient market. I mean, if you, you had the, the 10 year was at 407 yesterday, yep. late, later in the day, market continues to ramp. Yep. The S&P 500 was a touch below the 200 day moving average yesterday. And you're like, OK, maybe that's going to be the sell signal that, you know, you're looking for. Now it's back above 4000. It's at the highs of the day. What does that tell you about the resiliency of the market, even in the face of higher rates and what you think lies ahead. Right. Uh, that I'm still bearish. I don't think you revisit the lows that we saw. I don't think you get into 3,200, which was one of the targets I had probably a few months ago. But I still think you'll continue to see these rallies, increase volatility, but the overall direction is lower and you'll be able to get stocks cheaper. As I look at the markets done and some of the things I've sold, you know, I don't have real many regrets about what I've sold. Um, so 
Look, I'm going to continue to be tactical in what I do. Uh, I don't believe this is a sustainable rally. I think it's another bear market rally. So, Farmer Jim, um, how, how do you see it? How would you assess what's happened in, let's just say, the last 24 hours? Because the, the market, you know, maybe had a green light to do something different than it's, than it's doing today. Yeah, I, I, I hesitate to put too much emphasis on the rally today and yesterday. I want to, of course, because I am bullish overall. But the real confirmation of the bullish thesis has to come next week, starting with the labor report, average hourly earnings, and then the CPI, PPI the week after next. I will say this. Um, we, and obviously my nemesis Steve is here, you know, we have opposing viewpoints on what the market is telling us, particularly the bond market. Uh, the bond market is telling the bears that there's a recession ahead, the Fed's going to have to cut interest rates. To a bull, what the bond market is saying is that inflation may be coming down a heck of a lot more quickly than people expect. And that's what may get the Fed to back off. But again, confirmation of that starts next week. Right now, I'm just enjoying the ride. But I can't prove to you, Steve, or anyone else that inflation is coming down as fast as I think it is. Weiss, you want to rebut that at all? Yeah, I, I don't. I think he's misreading the signals in the market. And, you know, the Fed's come out there and said that inflation is going to. Look, you took the froth off inflation, right? And you got down to the levels you're at now. And now the view is from the Fed and from others that really follow inflation numbers that you're sort of at the at the get tough get tough now stage, right? Where you're not going to see the major declines, in it. and we still see price inputs inputs such as with wages going higher. So I think it's misplaced to say that inflation take care of itself. Number one, number two, there is no chance of the Fed cutting rates this year. There is no chance of it. That's not okay? what my thesis is. They may pause, but there is no chance. Yeah. yeah, just which, to be clear, Jim is, a rate cut is not what I'm saying, talking about. Uh, he's reiterating the fact that that's not his his position. So, Rob Seach, on this Friday here, Dow's good for 250. Had that nice little move yesterday. Rates, as we said at the top, taking a little bit of a breather. How do you see it now? You know, we're still in a good uh, seasonal period. We can't forget that. In the medium term, we still see challenges from earnings and valuation. And we have a Fed, it's a Cinnabon environment where we have hot and sticky inflation. And so the Fed's going to stay engaged. Um, while we can defy gravity for a little bit based on that seasonality, Scott, I do think that this catches up with us. Higher rates catch up with the consumer, higher rates catch up with valuations. Now, we came into the year cautious. We were cautious all last year, came into the year cautious. Um, kind of expected this range of 3,600 to 4,200. We really haven't broken out of that in any meaningful way as of late. Now, what happened in January is positioning and sentiment uh, were very negative, and they got back to neutral in, in January's rally. And so we're not off sides. I think you see a Fed that is engaged, and now the bond market finally has caught up to where we, are, we were and where the Fed was. And so the stock market's ignoring that because of seasonality, can ignore it for a little bit longer. But I'm not certain, at least with our clients, whether we want to take the risk associated with that because of that I disconnect. Wonder, though, I mean, you, I may give you something on seasonality to, to start the year, which was the January rally, at least in part. But mm -hmm. it's not like February was gangbusters at all. What I find interesting, and it circles back to what Shannon was doing with Apple and Microsoft, is that the moment there deems to be an opportunity in the market, people are going back to what worked before, 
the big slide in tech. And I use tech for an example. I look at the NASDAQ today, up almost, you know, this week it's up almost 2%. Right now it's mm-hmm. up one and a third percent. Apple's moving higher. This notion that this run in technology couldn't last, do you believe that or, or not? Because I feel like people still think we're going back to the 2022 playbook where what worked last year is going to work not. again this year. <laughs> and it, I don't know about that. So we were in an environment where a rising tide lifted all ships in technology, and you're seeing a huge disconnect in that this year. Um, you're seeing stocks that were broken, like Tesla, like NVIDIA, like uh, Meta, that were some of the worst performers last year, getting nice, healthy bounce off that terrible performance. But I think what you're going to see going forward is the companies that represent quality growth at a reasonable price, that are fundamentally strong, that are making decisions about spend, will, not doing it right now, but they will separate themselves from their peers as rates continue to grind higher and expose the the inefficient spend that is in some of these companies. Now, there's a lot of value, Scott, that's been created in like the SaaS companies. They traded at 20 times sales. They came all the way down to, you know, four times sales. And you've had private equity buyers coming in to take advantage of that. Why? Because the fundamentals dictate it. So I, I, I think you have to separate the wheat from the chaff, the men from the boys, however you want to describe it. And there's companies that are going to do well in companies that are going to do poorly. Now, when markets rally, some of these large cap tech stocks are going to rally because well, I mean, I'm looking of at the meta. construction of the indices. I, 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 I got you. I'm looking at Meta, for example, which was your pick in, in the stock summits up, up 6%. I want to get Shannon in, though, because I know she wants to say something. Go ahead. Well, I think Rob just made a great point. It's at, at reasonable valuations relative relative to what? Like, what is your reason? That's what that's what the market is grappling with right now is what is the reasonable relative premium over the rest of the market that companies that can grow their top line without significant secular tailwind, what is that? Because that premium has moved dramatically downward. And so Mm -hmm. is there a point at which, I mean, Steve, you said this, like, what is the right valuation for Microsoft from a premium perspective? I would say that's what's trickiest right now, because that inflection point of when the Fed not necessarily cuts rates, but potentially can ease their foot off the gas, I do think that we're going to go back into a slower economic environment in 2024. I think we, we may, even if we have a shallow recession, soft landing, we're not coming out of it gangbusters. No escape velocity in 2024 in my mind. So you're still going to have to think about what companies can grow top line. And I think that's, that's where you're going to see the divergence in technology, not just on a valuation perspective, because there's always going to be a relative valuation that's afforded to companies that can grow without the economy. This goes back, Weiss, to what we were debating the other day relative to where earnings are going. You see earnings continuing to decline. Labenthal, for example, does not. Bearish perspective versus bullish perspective. Yeah. So, you know, just coming in behind you, uh, it's also not, and, and this direct answers your question directly, it's not about when the Fed stops. Okay, The Fed's going to stop this year, right? It's what's the impact of it. So, you know, it, it, it's, like, it's like getting shot by a gun. Right. The shots happened and you got the wound. But what's that mean? You know, what's what's the damage from that wound? And we don't know that. And my bet is that 
the moment in time that Jim is focused on right now about earnings, and I would tell you they have come down quite a bit. Well, they obviously have. Because, I mean, estimates it, but, are way down from where they were, exactly. and they continue to trend in that direction. Exactly. So where do they end up? And that I don't know, but I do believe they end up a lot lower than where they are now, making the valuation gap that we see now where the market is versus reality even wider. So that's why I think you get an opportunity to buy virtually any stock at low prices. Jim? Yeah, thanks for coming to me, Scott. I, I know you know the distinction that I'm about to make, but it's not that I don't think earnings aren't coming down. It's that the sectors in which I am overweighted, I feel very positive about. This was our discussion from yesterday about airlines versus grocery stores. I'm not in grocery stores. I'm in airlines. I see great things coming from the likes of Wynn Resorts. I see great things coming from the likes of Cleveland Cliffs. But, but going back to Shannon at the top here, I'm underweight technology. I think the combination of the valuation and the earnings growth being below what it was in the last decade leaves me very cold there. So I'm just going back to where we were yesterday. Let's not paint the market, at least not me, with a broad brushstroke. This is a stock picker's market. You've got to pick your industries and your stocks within those industries. Right. But you you have declared within the last, I don't know, few weeks that this is a new bull market. You have said that on this program. So you've broad so, so brushed Scott, it. This- you don't yeah, think yeah, we're having a, a recession. You've, you've broad brushed the fact that you think that we're going to do far better, both from an economic perspective and a market perspective, than many others think. Well, it's, it's definitely true, not backing off from the fact that I think the economy and the markets are going to do a lot better than people expect. But the important distinction here, and I'm being consistent on this, and this speaks to what Rob was saying, is I think we're in a transition from growth to value leadership. This is why I'm underweight tech. It's why I'm underweight Apple, Microsoft, et cetera. It's why I'm overweight materials, energy, industrials, financials. I very strongly think that what's going on right now is not a bear market. It's a transition from growth leadership to value leadership. And it's painful because of what you talked about, of people getting sucked back in and thinking that what brought them to the dance in the last decade is going to take them home in this decade. It's likely not going to be the case. You know, two things. If you heard the Priceline CEO's interview on CNBC this morning, they're starting to see a little weakness. And I think that travel is a bubble. It's been a bubble whose life has been extended, but I think that bubble isn't going to burst at one time, but you're going to see there, you're going to see demand for high-priced hotels receding, for high-priced airfare receding, and they're going to add more capacity as the airlines do. So I wouldn't count on that, and they always are cheap. They always sell at six to eight times earnings. The question is, what are the earnings? So that's one thing. In, in terms of just where you're going to be in the market, as I said, I think you can be anywhere in six months or eight months. I've got no objection to people buying stocks right now. I nibbled on on Google a little bit because I listened to the Supreme Court hearings and I didn't think the court's going to rule against 230. So What's, let me ask you this question, yeah. because it's 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 easy to go to you and say, yeah, you're you're negative and you right. give me all the reasons why. And I go to Labenthal, I say you're bullish and he gives right. me all the reasons why. And the viewer's like, I get it. I mean, I hear the same stuff right. from these guys. What proves you wrong? What makes you wrong? What What do you worry about to be wrong? Okay, not one data point, right? Multiple data points, and you typically have to look at them over a three-month period. But if we saw, it won't be good for the market, if we saw a major drop in those data points, such as employment, and a major drop in inflation, and um, a drop in wages, 
okay, and an earnings period next quarter that's going to be far worse than what anybody's looking for, then I become bullish. You said the Fed is closer to it. Now everybody's going to overreact on the downside. Okay, so you want to see bad news, right? I want to see bad news. A whole being, bunch of different right. specters, and that pretends to you good news right. because it removes the Fed from the game. And pushing the, right. the Fed putting its finger on the scale. And conversely, I want to hear people stop talking about how great it is for the market that the economy is being so resilient because that puts them out of touch with what the impact of Fed tightening is doing. The Fed, you can't sit there and say Fed tightening that we've seen is going to have no effect on the economy, is not going to put it in a recession. So until we see the eyeballs of the recession and the, you know, the Pollyannas of the world who are mis, misjudging the importance of positive economic data. But see, I feel, like you're, I feel like you're taking a shot again at Jim about his view, thinking that his view no, is it, Pollyanna. No, it's a pervasive view. We hear it time and time again. It's not pervasive. Econ- Most people no, the are negative. Econ- we're, what we're hearing is pervasive is the economy is so resilient. It's so resilient. And what I'm saying is that's not positive. That's negative. So until they realize that's a negative, then I'm not going to turn. Jim? Hey, Scotty, can you come to me? Yeah, just putting, putting will, aside. Give me the, a second. Putting okay. aside the stone throwing that Steve and I like to do, let's all acknowledge that it is a muddle. It's a confusing situation because Steve is right. The Fed's rate hikes should have an effect. And I'm right that we've been talking about that for a year, a solid year, and the economy's hanging in there. So we've got a muddle. And at the end of the day, you have to think about where are the odds in your favor. Now, Steve's going to say it's an embarrassed sense. I'm going to say no. When you have a tie in this game, in baseball, a tie goes to a runner. In right, investing, but history, the, the tie I'm goes sorry, to but the history, history suggests that he's going to be right. Rate hikes operate in such a tremendous lag that... History would Look, suggest that, of course, again. that's I'll exactly right. Yeah. That, of I'll course, it's going to be ju- just a matter of time. I'll hang myself one more time as I did yesterday. Things are different. You are correct to cite historical patterns. And I know how stupid it says it sounds to say things are different. But I'm telling you, this pandemic is not business as usual. And we're still dealing with the after effects with it in terms of balance sheets, supply chains, labor hoarding. This is not business as usual. All right, let's do this. Let's squeeze in a quick break uh, because up next we have our halftime headliner, value investor Andrew Wellington, a special guest from Lyrical Asset Management. He's beating the street this year. We're going to get his view of the market plus his latest portfolio moves. Got some interesting names that he's talking about that he's recently added. Halftime's back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. 
Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back to Halftime. Our next guest focuses on value investing. He is outperforming this year with returns of more than 8%. Andrew Wellington is the co-founder and CIO of Lyrical Asset Management. He's here with us at Post 9. Welcome back. It's good to see you again. It's good to be back. All right, so you're beating the market as we just gave the number. How have you done that? What's been the key? Well, as you know, we don't trade a lot, so it hasn't been trading. But I think last year, we just saw a lot of our stocks sell off too much relative to their fundamentals. And I think we're just benefiting from calmer heads prevailing and those fundamentals beginning to reflect. We saw this start to happen in the fourth quarter last year, and it's just continued nicely into the first quarter of this year. I mean, we've had a good debate to start the show and I think to start this year about whether value was going to lead or if you know growth was pushing value back to the sideline. How would you assess what you've seen? Well, they're both leading, actually. Um, we, one of the things we do is we segment the market by valuation. And what we've seen is that the cheapest stocks in the market are outperforming. But the only thing doing better than the cheapest stocks in the market are the very most expensive stocks in the market, the most speculative. Uh, that doesn't happen very often, but that same thing happened when we came off the bottom of COVID back in March 2020. The really beaten up stocks recovered nicely, but also we, we know we, we had a big growth bubble that emerged out of that period as well. Does it make sense to you, the, the highly speculative, highly shorted, much, you know, much higher growthy type names? I'm a value well? guy. That stuff never makes sense to me. <laughs> <laughs> I like to do math, and you can't make the math work. So. But see, I, what I find so interesting, you bought, I mean, do you consider Uber? A value stock? I mean, you bought it early last year. It jumped out at me right when I saw that. I was like, wow, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that, that one comes up in every single client meeting since we added it to the portfolio. Okay, I'm glad People I'm consistent. Who kidnapped my value manager? Exactly. <laughs> my point exactly. So why? Uh, so I think to simplify the story, if you take Uber and you give them credit for getting to the margins that they think they can get to, then the stock is earning, would be earning about $3 a share. And with the value of the investments, it's, that's about 10 times earnings. And so the big question is, can they get there? They're not there today, um, but for the first time, they're expected to be profitable this year. And we think they can get there. One, they're already there in about a third of the markets they serve. So they've demonstrated they can get there. And two, for most of the rest of the business where they're not at those margins, we think they could get there if they just stopped spending on growth, mostly driver recruitment. So we think, you know, and it makes sense to do that spending on growth. They get a really high positive return out of it, but they have a good cost conscious culture now. And uh, so we, th- 10 times earnings for a business that's got 20 to 30% top line growth, mm-hmm. that's a value. You said at the top of the show, you don't do a lot of trading, so it's not trading that's, that's led to your outperformance, but you've been kind of busy and maybe busier than, than you normally would have been. This week, for example, I see you bought Primerica, you sold Lincoln National. Why the pair trade there? Yeah, we like to say uh, Primerica is a great business disguised as an insurance company. Um, Their specialty is selling really low value policies to households with net worths under 100,000. This is a seriously underserved population. 
The problem is there's not a lot of commission to be earned on such small policies. So you need a really efficient distribution force, and that's what sets them apart. They have this uh, variable cost distribution force that allows them to sell these policies at attractive economics, and they reinsure about 85% of the risk. So really, it's, it's a distribution model that's very difficult to repeat. Uh, we sold Lincoln National. We've kind of lost confidence in that business given the big reserve charge uh, that they took last year. And uh, Primerica, we think, is a far superior business. Concentrix was a January buy as well. Tell me about that. It's the ticker CX? CNXC. Um, and it's probably not a well-known name by your audience. It only exists as a public company for a couple of years. We owned a company called Cinex, which was in IT distribution. And they also had a business process outsourcing business, which they spun out, and that became Cinex. I'm sorry, Concentrix. And uh, again, a really great business, not one that's a household name, uh, but they, uh, a lot of modern companies are outsourcing a lot of their operations. It's not the key of their strengths. And so they're growing nicely as they increasingly take on those operations from other companies. Uh, a lot of BPO is perceived to be call centers. They play at a much higher level with much higher margins, and it's a far better business than the market's given it credit for. Yeah, I want to, to for you to weigh in on the, a discussion that we've had this week, really ever since, uh, I guess it was a few days ago that I interviewed David Einhorn about, I mean, he's as tried and true a value investor as they come, right? Um, talking about the, the, the business or the industry of value investing, not necessarily the strategy. Listen to what Einhorn told me. We can kick that around on the other side. I don't mean value investing as a strategy is unlikely to do well, but as an industry, it's dead. The money's moved from value investors into index funds, and it's, it's not coming back. And people who used to be able to charge a management fee and have a staff of research analysts and used to get money every month to invest in new ideas, you know, that's been switched to eight basis point index funds. What do you make of that? I mean, have, have you know, ETFs and the huge business of passive ETF investing killed the value investing industry? I don't think it's killed it, but we're a much smaller group of investors that have stuck to value investing than we ever were. Um, despite all its long-term success, like the most successful investor in history is Warren Buffett, and sure. he's a value investor. And despite that, it remains to be the least popular investment strategy. Why is that, you think? Great it's question. Sexy, it's not as sexy? I mean... I think that's a lot of it. It's psychology. Value investing, almost by definition, means owning what's unpopular. And so that's not a popular career choice. And then uh, moving to index funds, although I'd say the value indices are no real threat to a true value manager, they are a horrible proxy for value stocks. Uh, but index funds are definitely taking tons of assets away from active management. And the other thing is value has gone through probably its least good 15-year period in the history we have, 60 years of history. So that's winnowed the ranks. Uh, we just wrote a piece on this, and one of my favorite quotes comes from Phil Knight. It was in his book, Shoe Dog. Mm -hmm. And he says, the cowards never started and the weak died along the way. That leaves us. And so I think the good news is value investing as an investment strategy is working. And to David's point, we have a whole lot less competition out there. He made that point as well. Um, not just, and if people want to do what we do, they just don't know how to do it anymore. There's no place to get trained. There's only a handful of firms left that really carry on that legacy of true bottom-up, fundamental, deep value investing. That's kind of his point too. It's like, all right, all you pretenders, you know, get out of here. 
we, we know how to do it best and we'll continue to do it against, you know, fewer competitors. Weiss, what's your take here? No, I agree with that. I, I think you rationalize the, the wannabes, the ones who say they could. And, uh, you know, we take a look at, like, Rich Pizzina, who's a great value investor also. He's Rich also saw the, the opportunity. person that gave me my first job. Yeah. So. All right, well, there he you go. He took the opportunity to take his company private because it wasn't getting rewarded in the market. So, look, Rich is a great friend, but aside from that, he's just a brilliant investor. And he sees the opportunity, and I think it comes in and supports what you've been saying. So I do believe there's great opportunity there. And look, it's not sexy to talk about concentrics at a cocktail party. What are you talking about? You're talking about Apple and Microsoft and Amazon, right? So that creates the opportunity. But do you feel like we are in the midst of what may be a renaissance? Or is it just another head fake in a world of sexy growth? Well, I'm biased. <laughs> but Give me your unbiased opinion. Um, the value indices had their first good year in 15 years, the first year of materially outperforming and the best year they had since 2000. So that's attracting a lot of attention. But as I said, they're actually very poor proxies for value stocks. Value stocks have been outperforming since March 2020. And they also had a great nine-year run coming out of the financial crisis. So they're not nearly as broken as everybody thinks. And they have been working for three years. What's amazing is despite all the outperformance they've had for three years, the value spread, just how cheap value is versus the rest of the market, is about as wide as it's ever been. And so I still think this has the typical, the average length of a value upcycle is eight years. Uh, even though we're three years in, it still feels like we're far closer to the beginning. Let me add one more point. And the point is the 15 years you cite is when the free money era started. Well, of course. Right? I, I so, think there so, is kind so of a direct correlation. So that's the most correlation. obvious data point that we haven't discussed. So as when you go to a more normalized interest rate environment, you go back to when value should outperform technology and high growth. Right. Well, I mean, when you take the, when you take the steroids out of baseball, they hit fewer home runs. Yep. I mean, maybe there's a correlation there. Andrew, I appreciate your time so very much. It's good to see you again. Likewise. Look forward to talking to you again soon. Um, all right, coming up, our chart of the day. It's the worst performing stock in the S&P 500 today. Shannon owns it, which means we will trade it and debate it next. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Bertha Coombs, and this is your CNBC News Update at this hour. South Korea and the U.S. held a combined military exercise over the Yellow Sea and central region of the Korean Peninsula on Friday. This comes as the Allies announced plans to hold their largest field exercise over the past five years later this month. North Korea is already threatening to take, quote, unprecedentedly strong action against those drills. Walgreens said it will no longer offer abortion pills in states where attorney generals object, even in places like Alaska and Iowa, where abortion remains legal. Republican attorney generals in 20 states sent Walgreens a letter last month warning the pharmacy chain that they would take legal action if Walgreens continued distributing medication abortion. 
And U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein is receiving treatment for shingles in a California hospital. The 89-year-old senator was diagnosed with the virus in February and is expected to make a full recovery, according to a statement from her office. Feinstein is the oldest member of Congress and recently announced she will not seek re-election in 2024. Gotta get that shingles vaccine, Scott, if you haven't already. All right, Bertha, thank you very much, Bertha Coombs. Let's get to our chart of the day now, Costco. It is the worst performer in the S&P 500. They missed on revenues and same store sales. There's a stock down three and a third percent. Shan, you on it. What's your take? Yeah, so we, we talked about this last week ahead of, um, you know, some potential uh, disappointing news, and we got it. Um, but same store sales are still up over 5%, Scott. Uh, where the miss was is really in those large discretionary items, which is very much consistent with what we heard from Walmart. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I would say is that if you want to be involved in big box retail, which we do, we want to have some exposure to big box retail, and you want to think about potentially where you get that exposure, I still feel really strongly about Costco. We're not seeing any impact in terms of subscriptions. Renewal rates are at all-time highs, 93%, over 90% internationally. And so if I think about their disciplined SKU management, their private label, and their ability to continue to have this, caught, these, this, this annuitized revenue coming in the door, mm -hmm. we're not seeing that weakness. Now, again, large discretionary items, very profitable. So we're going to see some pressure here. I guess the big question, and I know that, you know, people have a lot of questions about the multiple that this stock is well, trading Well, like at. Rob Seachin <laughs> might have questions about the multiple, which is why, Robert, you sold it at the end of January, right? We did. It's, you know, it was about valuation. It was trading at 32 times or 33 times. Then it's 32 times now. The the top line was slowing. Growth was slowing to mid single digits. Free cash flow margins were cut in half. And it was just hard to justify that lofty valuation. No doubt, uh, Shannon points it out, they have a loyal following. They, uh, but price increases that they were making, uh, we thought would be difficult to sustain given the pressure that the consumer's under. So we did not want to own big box retail. Uh, you know, you talked about Apple at the beginning of the show, the luxury consumer is doing great. I think there's going to be some strains beneath the surface. And so this is just not a stock we wanted to own or and still wouldn't be interested in. Okay. Weiss, goes back to sort yeah. of what perspective you want to take on where the consumer truly is today. Yeah, what's interesting about this is that does their business grow from consumers trading down? They, I don't regard them as another big box retailer because they've got such a unique value proposition and brand, and it's difficult to see that further competition come on other than the obvious ones, which is principally Walmart. Target is sort of a different consideration. So. So I'd love to be able to buy this company, and I don't think I'm going to be able to get it at traditional big box multiples. Is that 25 times? Maybe. Given my market view, frankly, I might even step, I would have, except for my market view, I might even step up today because I just think management is incredible. Yeah. And it's an incredible story. Why don't you wrap it up for us? Yeah, I mean, most important, international continues to grow, but they they are so disciplined about store management. So I'm I, to, to Steve's point, this is the management execution here is something that should command a premium multiple. All right, Farmer Jim, you got to run. You have a good weekend. We'll see you on the other side. Oh, you too, so disappointing. Everybody. All right. Weiss sends his regards. I know you heard yeah. that. All right, coming up, we're tracking the trades. Two committee members trimming one health care name. We'll debate that next.
All right, we are back. We do have some committee moves to get to. Rob Seachin, coming to you here. Uh, you trimmed United Health. Shannon did as well, but I want you to tell me why you did it. Second time you trimmed it. Yeah, we trimmed it in September, and one of the reasons is we're reducing healthcare exposure uh, to a slighter overweight, Scott. Um, UNH has slowing top-line incremental declines in profitability. Now, we, we keep it because it's still a steady grower with secular tailwinds, rising enrollments, and deeper coverage. So. Uh, we're going to continue to maintain the position, but let's remember that this stock has outperformed the healthcare sector by 40% in the prior 12 months. So, you know, taking some gains and in, in paying attention to what is slightly slowing fundamentals. Okay, you bought okay. ConocoPhillips, COP. Tell me why there. Yeah, so he, he, here's, a, here's a case of. Uh, getting exposure to a sector we like. You know we, energy was our favorite pick last year. We maintained a, a strong preference for, for energy this year. The macro view is that oil and gas prices will continue to be upwardly biased from current levels due to supply constraints and you know stabilizing uh, demand. This is a great company. It's the largest independent energy company. It's one of the largest independent energy companies by total reserves. Um, they're diversified across product type and they have a lower cost of production than their competitors. Um, so great business. Okay. It's a little expensive for the EMP space, trades at 10 times versus some of the others, but still very high quality. You sold Crane Holdings, ticker CRY. Uh, Crane was sold more because of performance. It's been a long-term holding for us. They're an industrials company uh, focused on aerospace and defense and residential properties. It was a smaller position uh, for us, but valuation got extended. And again, it had a 40% gain over the last nine months. And when free cash flow turned negative, we pulled the ripcord. All right, and you bought more MasterCard, too. But we'll take a quick break. We're going to come back. Mike Santoli with his Midday Word is next. We're back. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joining us right here at Post 9 for his Midday Word, which is? It tells you something about how much the tension had been ratcheted up in a grinding way over the last few weeks that I think you got this release today just with a bit of a easing back of, of Treasury yields yeah. and kind of a eye of the beholder uh, set of dovish comments maybe by uh, Fed officials. So a lot of it, you, you almost kind of are hesitant to say, a lot of it looks very textbook about late February weakness and you have another rebound. It only gets the S&P back to what it was, you know, 10 days or two weeks ago. Um, but it keeps it out of that trough uh, where people would have to really start to question whether, in fact, it's just retracing this, uh, you know, a big part of that move from October. The relief, I guess, for many. You, you see it right there at bottom, 10-year, yeah. right? 398 instead right. of 407. That's right. Because it's, it not, yesterday. it's not the level. It's what the level means about where it's going. And so if it just doesn't seem completely unanchored, uh, it can go. Now, everything very contingent. You know, we absorbed decent ICI, some services numbers today. Yeah. It was not so much a good news as bad news. But then the, the stakes do get a little higher next week with jobs, oh, yeah. without a doubt. So uh, you can't pencil anything in. But so far, the market is, has been able to kind of show that it has a little more resilience and just volatility draining out of it, right? The VIX below 19. It doesn't feel like a 2022 type environment. So let's see what we do over the final couple of hours uh, before I see yep. again All right. uh, for your last word in closing. It's Mike Santoli. We will be right back.
All right, it's time for Grade My Trade. All right, Shannon, you're up first. Jonathan in Colorado, Nextera, sold block square on uh, February 2nd at $87.68, bought Nextera on the 9th at $74, we'll call it. You own Nextera, so what do you think? It's a great trade. Um, clearly well executed. But what I would advise is don't get scared over the next couple of weeks because there's going to be some swirl around regulation around Florida Power and Light in Florida, which has always been a tailwind for this stock. The trend, the play here is solar, um, and that's going to continue to grow. So hold on to this one despite some swirl we might get over the next few weeks. All right. Uh, there you see stock moving higher today. Steve Weiss from Paul Brady. OK, uh, GXO, big fan of halftime. However, Weiss is my guy, first mistake. I wish he was on every day, second mistake. Got in GXO around $42. Do we stick with it despite the economic headwinds? Mahalo. P.S. If Weiss ever makes it to Oahu, I owe him a Mai Tai. Well, first of all, I'm going to go. Thanks, Paul. As I, yeah. as I often do, is I'm going to Paul's go. last name Weiss? Yeah, it, it could be. As I often do, I'm going to go beyond what you're asking of me, okay? okay? And grade each sentence that he had there. They all get A pluses. Okay? As far as the trade, as far as the trade on GXO, what I'd say is, look, that's a that's a great purchase. GXO has firm commitments, so they're basically take or pay. It's a highly frequented business. They're the largest independent 3PL. They only have a six percent share. So the growth for them, in terms of consolidation, in terms of their business. They're saving Nike 100 basis points on their business. So I think it's a phenomenal trade in a great long term. Okay, stock up uh, 2 and 3%. Moving to highs of the day. All right, Rob, uh, from Nikki, Cadence Design bought 500 shares at 156. What do you think? We own it. Great trade. A plus uh, for Nikki. We bought it, actually talked about it on the show in October of 20. It's up 27% since. Uh, this is a company that continues to execute in a difficult environment. They're a dominant player in chip design software. So I would uh, I would say A plus and continue to hold it. We do. Uh, by the way, Weiss, it's nice that you can have family members call in and ask questions. I'm going to start doing All that. All right, too. we'll do final trades. We'll do final trades next. All right, two hours from now, closing bell, 3 o'clock Eastern. You know who we have today? Jeremy Siegel. I know you want to hear what Dr. Jeremy Siegel has to say before you hit the weekend, before you watch overtime, because Siegel is going to tell you about this week we've had in the markets with a big one looming as well. So we'll see you then, 3 o'clock Eastern time. Rob Seach in Final Trade. Rio Tinto, RIO, UK-based miner that's inexpensive and leveraged to the China reopening. All right. Thank you, Steve Weiss. Alphabet. I nibbled on it this morning. That's what you uh, said. Yep. And, and I got comfort based upon Supreme Court hearings. Uh, I think it's cheap. I think there'll continue to be challenges, but they'll also be much more efficient coming out of this cycle. All right. Thank you for that. And uh, Shen? American Tower. Uh, digital infrastructure is going to continue to grow. Don't be scared away by the Selnex acquisition news. All right. So we just remind you what the market is doing right now. We're highs of the day, about 277. For the Dow, S&P 500, well above that 200-day moving average now. I'll see you in closing bell. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key. 
But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.